without miracles. He will provide himself with miracles of his own making. He will believe in any kind of deity, even though he may otherwise be a heretic, an atheist, and a rebel. Ladies and gentlemen, coming at you live from Leopold Street, Oxford. This is the Heretics Podcast. Coming in hot here today, it's a beautiful Wednesday evening, a cold, crispy autumn evening. My name is Tom, and uh, welcome to the show. And um, with me today is, uh, is, uh, is Eddie. Eddie, hello. You don't know my surname, do you, Tom? Uh, Can't remember it. Uh, Griffiths, I believe. Ooh, that's nowhere near. Nowhere near. Eddie Jacobs. Eddie Jacobs. That's just two first names strung together, mate. Uh, and an S. And an, that's true. That's a good point. Mm. That's a good point. Eddie, it's great to see you here today, mate. Great to be here. Thank I don't you. Know, no one listening can see what a lovely place you've got, but yeah. Oh, thank you. Got a nice eye for de- decor. Oh, <laughs> you're the, literally the first human being in history who said that. Um, so, yeah, good to have you here. Um, Eddie is something of a veteran of the radio scene, right? You've uh, been on a number of uh, Irish, Welsh, Scottish pod- podcasts in the last few weeks. Also, uh, going back a little while now, I had a very strong run on the Dutch circuit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was working for the Beckley Foundation, which is a uh, charity just outside of Oxford that does uh, policy science work with psychedelics. And the Dutch were going crazy over one three month period or so. Um, but the boss didn't think they were like big enough fish. So I kind of was pushed in front of Dutch mics to talk about drugs. I see Dutch mics being made out of wood. Mm. Um, they, they do have they have drugs in the Netherlands then. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Really yeah. interesting. Now now you sell acid for a living, right? That's I think you've read your notes wrong. I have not. Well, I spilled red stripe on them, so it is something blurry. But my understanding is that you are a uh, an acid dealer who uh, an itinerant acid dealer. It says here. No, I think that's your next guess. I think that might be my next guess. Uh, no, in fact, uh, just just messing around. Uh, Eddie is in fact actually a, a proper academic, um, meaning he's doing a real degree. And has an actual specialist knowledge and has been published in Scientific American. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite oxymoronic magazine titles. But no, in fact, it is a pleasure to have Eddie here today. Um, I met Eddie briefly uh, a few weeks ago in keeping with the theme of the podcast where we interview weird or fringe uh, academic types. Eddie's specialist subject is, well, you could probably explain it better than I can. Well, I guess my um, depends how specialist you want to go. Okay. Well, like, that, okay. Okay. So my specialism is psychedelics, uh, specifically psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, specifically bioethical dimensions of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. We're going to take a short break while I look <laughs> up some of these words. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, that's really cool. So, I mean, let's maybe start with the recent article and we can sort of branch off from there. Feel free yeah, to talk sure. about what you like. Uh, your recent article was published in Scientific American. I'll put a link in the show notes. Could you maybe just summarize what you wrote in there and maybe some of the feedback you got from that article? Oh, yeah. I thought you wanted to talk about that. Yeah. Um, so this article in uh, Scientific American was sort of like the elevator pitch for why what I think I'm doing is interesting. So we've got, as I'm sure your listeners will know, because they're going to be switched on people. So we have this psychedelic renaissance going on. We've got all sorts of excitement about... Um, treating all sorts of mental disorders with psychedelics in conjunction with therapy and like it's surprising how good it is um so treatment resistant depression death related anxiety uh tobacco addiction now ocd cocaine addiction 
um, and half a dozen more that don't spring to mind, they seem like these are really radically going to change the face of mental health treatment at the moment. But um, so you have one group of people that um, just aren't interested in this because these are the bad drugs. You have a sizable group of people who could be convinced. And then you have like the real enthusiasts who really see this is going to change the world. Mm. Um, so I kind of lean towards the real enthusiasts, but I'm a cynic by nature. And really, I notice that that movement doesn't have any cynicism, doesn't have any skepticism. And so like my gift to the psychedelic community, which I care about, is thinking, oh, I see some problems up ahead. Let's look at some of those problems. Mm. Um, so like the good chunk of my research is really carefully thinking about what's going on when we give people psychedelics in a clinical context. Because yeah, you get these fantastic treatment effects um, in a good number of conditions, way better than anything else, mm. any other treatment options we have. But they have also these really weird side effects. Um, <clears throat> so you find that um, people come out different, not just better from whatever it was that was ailing them before. People come out different in terms of measurable, measurable differences in their personality their outlook on life, their disposition towards their fellow man, their disposition towards nature, their disposition towards the nature of reality. So when you give um, people clinically relevant doses of some psychedelic drugs, you wind up making atheists doubt that description of themselves afterwards. Mm. Um, likewise, I mean, there's some evidence as well that suggests there's political change going on. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> And so this, I think, is the thing that really got um, people excited right. ab about this article was because what I was trying to communicate with it was, hey, actually, this changes your political values. And I think the way everyone read it, because uh, I necessarily had to simplify some things, um, people read it by saying, ah, this changes your political affiliation. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of thrown into... Um, a very reductionistic, very binary system, which I don't think is quite correct. Right, right. And I mean, of course, at the moment, maybe, well, we've never been more politicized than we are at the moment. And a lot of people would attach a straight value judgment to your position on the left to right scale. Mm. And just to summarize for the listeners, I'm sure they could probably guess this themselves, but uh, the effect of psychedelic drugs is to shift you to the left, or at least how the left is measured in yeah. contemporary <clears throat> society, right? Well, I mean, so it's complicated. So what... Um, data is out there and i have problems with the data myself but what data is out there suggests a tendency towards um liberalism in foreign economy towards um well yes the left um sorry foreign foreign economy foreign foreign policy thanks foreign for policy. picking up on that Tom. yeah no problem that's what i'm here for me uh, yeah yeah okay so so basically that the a number well because I think the left-right dichotomy is itself kind of a weird thing at the moment, right? Mm. COVID has been politicized along a left-right left dichotomy. Um, issues like environmental care have been politicized. Um, that shift leftwards corresponds to what exactly? Um, so there's data on this going back to the 70s, and it's really just in terms of um, what should we be doing with our limited resources and how should we, I mean, how should we make decisions about right. the very small amount of stuff we've got and who gets to keep what right. and what should be funded, that sort of thing. It's interesting that you mentioned um, environmentalism mm. um, being, um, being politicized as well. Uh, so 
if you'll allow me, I'll talk a bit more about the research that's out there. Yeah, please. Um, so the research, I mean, uh, one study that uh, was done at the Imperial um, Psychedelic Research Center a couple of years ago um, with a, a sample of uh, patients suffering from treatment-resistant depression. Um, one paper that came out said, found that they become more anti-authoritarian, mm. which is just a, a demonstration of some change of values. Um, but some commenters rightly pointed out, hugely small study, um, seven people, right? Also, very small effect size. But one thing that I was surprised no one picked up on was that also um, these people were asked five questions to determine how authoritarian, how anti-authoritarian they were. And so I think this is the real challenge for understanding what's going on with psychedelics and political change. So no shade on the Imperial research team for only asking these five questions. Mm. Um, and as an aside, if you think it sounds cool to trip for science, like go to one of these studies and mm. be given free drugs, I really don't think it's going to be that fun, only because it's not like hanging out with your friends and taking a tab of acid. It is. Um, hanging out with some scientists and being given a tab of acid and constantly being asked questions about what's going on every moment mm. and then answering a huge battery of questions about all sorts of things. So this, this psychedelic renaissance is really new and people want to test all sorts of things. So the fact that there are only five questions about politics asked, better than no questions. But the issue is, as you say, we politicize everything. Um, one thing that hasn't properly been discussed um, by anyone really, I don't think, in terms of psychedelics and political change is the fact that there's a quite robust effect of psychedelics making you feel more connected to nature, mm. making you care more about nature, which on the face of it doesn't look political at all. But like, if you have those effects in a context, say in the US, where it's hugely politicized, where there is one... Um, one of the te political teams that are kind of famous worldwide as really not giving a shit about the environment. That's going to that's gonna have a political effect, right. even if not really. Um, I'll expand on that a little bit about what that political effect is going to look like. Yeah. Um, so I've been speaking with Matthew Johnson at Johns Hopkins University, who runs a lot of this um, psychedelic work and expressed some doubts about what was going on in this, poli in this political change. Um, and I've lost my train of thought. What am I talking about? Uh, I think about nature specifically, but uh, about the effects of psychedelic drugs in general. Ah, uh, no, I've like completely <laughs> forgotten, which I'm sure would give listeners yeah. the um, No, I have to say impression. that this man has been snorting acid for the last 40 minutes. You really uh, every can't time say I... <laughs> that, Tom, like even as a joke. <laughs> every time I turn my back, he's getting a little bit of paper off his finger and just mm. insulfating it, right, which is okay. quite distracting. So he's probably not going to make it through the whole show, ladies and gentlemen, and I do apologize. Thank for you. Out of my defensiveness, I picked up the strain I was having again. Okay, right. that's good. So Matt Johnson said, well, I've been running these trials for like more than 100 people and no one's came up to me afterwards and just volunteered the knowledge that they'd shifted their political affiliation. Mm. Yeah, fine. I think that would be really surprising mm. if someone mentioned this just apropos nothing. Mm. Um, but so suppose, Tom, that having a psychedelic experience makes you... 1% more liberal or like 1% more likely to vote for the Democrats than you were before. Right. Yeah. Right. The people who that's going to impact are going to be swing voters anyway. 
would those people um, volunteer the fact that they voted Democrat after their psilocybin rather than Republican? Yeah. I don't think, I don't, I mean, I don't think that they'd be eager to say. No, I, like, in fact, I think that one of the interesting things is that people find political change in their personality almost embarrassing because it, because it, it implies a lack of conviction or a sort of malleability that some people don't really like to admit to people, mm. like people who drift to the left or the right. And I think maybe at the moment there might be people doing both of those things often pretend or prefer especially if they're in a social group with one political preference that people don't like to admit that their positions change um you know because it, it, it to them maybe it, it demonstrates a sort of weakness or looseness of morality or mind I, I, so i take your point um but what, what i'm trying to drive at is that the subgroup of say psychedelic takers yeah. who have experienced the change mm. they were kind of on the threshold anyway mm. such that maybe some years they vote republican some years they vote democrat like so they might not even detect it as but, a sorry, so this bias is coming what from this from the initial sample group or the people where that political change because you're sort of making this into a binary issue by talking about voting right yeah you're almost making this a republican democrat conservative labor dichotomy which in many ways is what's wrong with politics in mm -hmm. the first place so the more we use these binary terms in a way it's like well what what use is any of this metric anyway i mean in sure. america you've got two you know centrist centrist right parties mm. uh two neocon candidates sure uh, so what so what i'm trying to do tom is just um defend my position against pe like people who say well we don't see anyone voting democrat when they voted republican before right right okay and so why that doesn't surprise me mm. even though i think there might be a trend in this direction is because you're not going to get dyed in the wool um republicans being affected in this way like so assume there is an mm. effect on political values yeah and that it just points in one way and yeah. i don't think it's as simple as that yeah suppose that is the case yeah the people who are going to be shifted in terms of who they actually voted for are going to be at the threshold anyway such that maybe it's not so remarkable for them mm. Mm. but also uh, you're right like making things so simple and so binary occludes a lot of what politics is because there's going to be nothing like um, well, I took psilocybin and I voted for a slightly less individualistic candidate in a primary. Yeah. Like there are going to be all sorts of subtle differences or, in your Or I behavior. took psilocybin and I stopped voting or I took psilocybin and I decided to run for local office or I took psilocybin and I moved to the woods and built a cabin or, you know, I don't know. It, it just seems like a crazy metric to have such a... Uh, and I think we need to bear in mind as well, I don't know what percentage of people don't vote, but I think it's it's fairly high. I mean, it just seems like a very reductive way of measuring it. I, I think maybe to, to step back for a second, what, what seems remarkable for me is that in all of these effects you're talking about, the, the, the benefits, psilocybin seems to be a, a, a wonderful drug that has many, many positive benefits for people, right? Not, not smoking cigarettes, not doing coke every night, not being addicted to oxycotton or whatever. This is all positive. So you have this huge swath of positive benefits. Mm. On the negative side, you have very, very little. When you tack... I will uh, challenge you on that later. Sure, that's cool. Carry on with your No flow. problem. <clears throat> when you tack a swing towards the left onto there, it implies a morality because you have a drug that its advocates list as a huge list of positive things. Mm. And, and that, that, I think, very conveniently seems to make the argument that the left is good. I mean, that's basically the argument, right? Yeah. Psilocybin will have all these positive effects, one of which is you'll be less of a right-wing MAGA you know, monster and you'll recognize the value of left-wing politics. Yeah, of course. So I think one thing that's also missing in a lot of talk about psychedelics, the psychedelic science, is there's not much nuance about understanding what values are. And yeah, um, 
uh, maybe I was asking for it writing the article that I did, but there were so many takes on Twitter that just said, ha, conservatism is the disease, right. psilocybin is the cure. Right. And I'll uh, expand this a bit just to lay out why I think thoughts like this thought and thoughts like that, not why they're not helpful, we can talk about that later, but why they just don't make sense in terms of um, psychedelic therapy. Mm. Um, so there's, there's one strain of thinking where uh, people are very enthusiastic about this impact of psilocybin or any psychedelic use on your nature connectedness mm. in terms of how much you care about the environment. And there are people out there that, um, with varying degrees of strength, think that this is going to solve the ecological crisis. Mm. Right. When we put acid in the drinking water and everyone is forced to reckon with the trees. Fortunately, Tom, that is never going to work because it would degrade with even the slightest bit of chlorine. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. Um, and so what I, uh, let me lay out what I think people's thinking is um, when they come to this conclusion. They look at the trial of psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. People come in, they like they've got this um, condition that they want to get rid of. Yeah. And they take, the, they take the pill and they come out and they don't have the depression anymore. Right. In the trial of psilocybin for um, tobacco addiction, people come in with this condition mm. that they have that they want to get rid of. Uh, they take the pill. Lo and behold, afterwards, they're done. And so the people are inclined to think, ah, it's the same with this environment stuff. Mm. Uh, we've got a lot of people that just don't care about the environment enough. Yeah. So if they take the pill... Like they'll be fixed in the same way that the depressed people were fixed, in the same way that the addicts were fixed. Right. But hang on, sure, everyone who's depressed, well, a large chunk of the people who are depressed, want to get rid of that depression. Tobacco addiction, it's not that clear. Mm. Everyone that showed up to the trial, they've been smoking 19, like a pack a day for 19 years, mm. and they, wanted, they had multiple quit attempts, they wanted to quit. There's an important disanalogy there with the environment example. Because what is the condition that, that these people are claiming? Um, and I'm good friends with lots of them. I, I regret calling them just these people. Uh, what is the condition to be cured here? What an insufficient amount of care for the environment. Yeah. If, that's, if that is correctly a pathology, you still need to get people in there to take the psilocybin. Right? So, so if uh, I don't care about the environment, I don't really care that I don't care about the environment. Yeah. Right. And so it's, it's really challenging to have people come and say, ah, you care about the wrong things. It's mental eugenics, essentially. It's saying your, yeah. your worldview is not compatible with what we consider desirable. Yeah. You require treatment. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like a lobotomy. Yeah. Here, take this pill mm. and uh, you'll value the right things, yeah. which just so happen to be the things that we value. Yeah. Like regardless of how strong the link is between psychedelics and envir pro-environmental behavior, like there's an implementation challenge there that seems impossible to overcome. The, the right wing can't go out and say, we're going to give you all high doses of daily cocaine so that you focus more on uh, starting restaurants and building capitalist businesses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And I think that, so essentially your point is like Donald Trump doesn't wake up in the morning and go, fuck, I wish I cared more about the trees. Yeah. He, he's like, I'm, you know, if he thinks about trees at all, which I doubt he does, he goes, well, I'm glad I don't care about them. They're dumb and they don't make me any money. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so, so that makes a lot of sense. It, um, also, it also seems profoundly anti-democratic mm -hmm. as if like the solution that we have, um, 
the solution that we have in mind to fix what's what's wrong with democracy is mm. that the people value the wrong things. Let's make them value the right things. Yeah. That uh, that it, seems authoritarian, yeah. right? And, and, and often this is coming from people that claim, oh, on the basis of that imperial study, ah, psychedelics make you less authoritarian. Right. I think we could maybe if we wanted to go down a path where we do talk about some of the hypocrisies of the left in, in, in terms of social engineering and how they would like the world to look mm. and, and the implementation strategies for that, I'd rather take a step back if I could. Please do. Now, you chose to do a psychiatry, uh, it's, it's called a DPhil here, right? A PhD, you yeah. Can tell yeah Oxford's got to be special. Yeah, yeah. The, this is my second, the second DPhil of the podcast, actually. We're one of the higher qualified podcasts, I guess, in the world, which you wouldn't think from listening to, uh, to us. But I guess my question is fundamentally... Um, one of the things you mentioned was was mental illness, uh, specifically depression and addiction, and the the definition of mental illness, which for some people seems to be such a fixed thing, uh, depression, nicotine addiction, and stuff like that. I mean, I think it is worth considering the fact that is that you know homosexuality was considered a mental illness, and people were encouraged to enter treatment programs for for that you know In, including, including lsd uh, really yeah really yeah so you know yeah. tim tim leary yeah like sure the the researcher who all current psychedelic researchers mm. must be afraid of but like he casts a very long shadow right all. right right but uh yeah he uh wrote quite a famous playboy article talking about how you can cure homosexuality with lsd wow yeah he's a bit of a saint isn't he Mm. And he was talking about curing homosexuality. Yeah. Bloody hell. Okay, I did not know that. That's mm. interesting. Well, that's funny. Well, then I guess he's preempted my point, which is that when you start... I mean, the thing about depression is that, like, I mean, you know, suffering is self-evidently real and undeniable and sort of indubitably negative in a sense. Mm -hmm. But with some of these so-called, uh, I guess, mental illnesses or malfunctions, you, you, you run into a difficulty of definition where you sort of end up calling it a... In a way, it's, 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 a lack of, it's a lack of compatibility or a lack of alignment with what we consider to be a standard or sane mental model, mm -hmm. right? And there, there seems to me that there's a thin line between what we call a mental illness, which I think is maybe a term that's used less right now, and, and you know, what we call uh, increasingly, uh, uh, what is it, neuroatypical or something like that. Mm -hmm. and there seems to be an ongoing conversation. I wonder what you think about that. I think... That is uh, largely above my pay grade, but I agree with you that, man, like, that's uh, like it's a really complicated set of issues. I mm. think it um, ties into, God, what's it called? Like initially I wasn't sure about it, but um, discussions about disability more generally. I yeah. think it's like either the social model of disability that's re really saying disabilities don't come about because there are problems with bodies. Yeah. Disabilities come about because of some mismatch between right. a body and right. the world around it. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, even more complicated um, with mental health challenges, right? Yeah. I know uh, there's a huge furor at the moment about personality disorders. Yeah. Like yeah. to go out and say that yeah. your personality is disordered yes. is uh, quite a claim to pathologize. Uh, do you have anything, I wonder if you've got anything much to say about DMT, uh, maybe speaking about that. Uh, because uh, that's, that's, a, that's a substance that almost maybe beyond psychedelics seems to connect people directly to what I would call almost a sort of, I don't know. I mean, a supernatural or exterior. Uh, you get into trouble talking about this stuff because you're going to sound a bit weird, however you frame it. But another dimension, essentially. Yeah, I like that you're um, chasing the Joe Rogan listenership, uh, asking questions about DMT. Yeah, Absolutely. smart move. Smart yeah, move yeah. for an early for yeah, an early episode. Well, I of the think podcast. It's, I, I, it's someone who isn't me has, to know me has done DMT in the past and claimed that it has had a a profoundly different 
experience to the classic psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. When I was young, I used to think that if you took drugs, you would see things that aren't real. And my experience with psychedelics, which I'm happy to talk about, has been that you actually see things that are real uh, in a way that reality filters to you in a very direct, pure way. Um, my experience with DMT is profoundly different in that I was not here anymore. I was somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, that's a really interesting number of issues about psychedelics and how they seem to be working in the brain or what our best theorists say. And then DMT. So uh, reports of users of LSD, um, when they have strange visual experiences, it's not that they see things that aren't there. It's that they misrepresent in interesting ways mm. um, what's going on in front of them. Yeah. Uh, so as I get the sense that probably you know, really, in, a, in an important sense, we are hallucinating all the time. Sure. sure. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, shall Speak I just expand yourself, on mate. that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, go on. Uh, so kind of the front runner in our theories about how the brain works at the moment really um, conceives of it as a prediction engine, mm. right? It's not just that what we see is an uncomplicated um, portrayal of the stuff that's hitting our retinas, right? It's all that stuff that's hitting our retinas coupled with uh, certain biases, priors, prior expectations about what the world is like. Um, and so how any visual illusion, normal visual illusion that you've seen, uh, you know, where it looked like the Ames room, where it looks like you're looking at two women down the other side of a checkerboard room, and one is phenomenally tall and one is tiny. Mm. Do you know that one? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's a perspective-based illusion, right? Because you expect yeah. distant objects to be... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so the way that that works uh, is that it's not really a checkerboard floor. Like, it's a very carefully printed, like, painted... Um, floor such that from one certain perspective it looks how you would expect a checkerboard floor to look yeah. right but of course what impinges onto your retinas isn't the full depth of the world it's just like independent individual neurons being firing and there's like a calculation based on all of the things that that could be all the things that those retinas could be uh, excited by mm. um, yeah extrapolated into one whole yeah. And so what's happening with LSD um, or classical psychedelics, not including DMT, uh, is that there's a loosening, like a relaxation of uh, these prior expectations about what's going on. Uh, so like a common thing is this uh, perception of the walls breathing, mm. which is actually there's some ambiguity in what you're seeing about quite how close the walls are. Uh, and so even if you're just look, staring at the wall right in front of you, uh, there's a sense of, uh, oh, maybe it's a bit closer. Mm. Maybe it's a bit further away. And so your brain is constantly like switching around what are all the different things that it could be. Uh, and say, like, and then you look at your hands and it's like, oh, are those actually fingers or are those sausages? Right. Or like, it, it seems unlikely, right. but maybe what I'm seeing isn't being generated by looking at a hand with fingers. It's... Uh, a bunch of worms it's stuff right, like that right, that's what's right, going right, on there right but as you say with dmt with dmt you don't get the sense that the stuff around you seems different it seems that you are in a different world yeah like a different reality you have been transported to a separate place where there are apparently autonomous beings that are quite interested in you <laughs> like yes. sometimes they have things to say yeah yeah um so what like one thing i'd want to stress about this DMT experience, and especially these entities, which seem to take a 
limited number of shapes or forms, there's yeah. a surprising degree of homogeneity in yeah. reports about what sorts of beings they encounter. Um, one thing that's sort of, well, one thing that's very telling is that they will tell you all sorts of crap. Like, so many people will come away uh, from one of these experiences having been told the ultimate truth mm. by the machine elves or by a jester, a mm. joker or um, something like that. Yeah. They don't all say the same thing. In fact, yeah. they say radically different things. It's like about whether the future of humanity is doomed, whether it's to be saved, like, excuse me, like a certain date is when everything's going to be destroyed Do people uh, have that impression a certain date is named in their uh, that sort of thing right a and uh things like uh there are reports of um one of these entities helpfully telling you where your lost lighter is or <laughs> explaining what the rules and regulations of nfl football are <laughs> okay well so i guess what's so interesting about that is that the um the um the, the similarity between the visual or the representational aspect of the entities seems to indicate some kind of higher truth or some sort of, you know, break. No, no, well, I know you're a cynic, but, but, but stay with me. That the homogeneity of, of that imagery seems to indicate a sort of collective Jungian unconsciousness or an, or an actual exterior dimension populated by machine elf jesters. But you're saying that the disparity of information given to us, it's not like they're all saying, for God's sake, you know, save the dolphins or, you know, turn off the nuclear power plants. They're all, they've all got some, which, which leads it more towards a kind of like induced psychosis than an actual coherent worldview. Well, so I'm willing to accept that uh, the fact that they're all saying different things isn't, isn't really conclusive towards, oh, it's, it's some strange brain activity and nothing else. Mm. Because it, you can fully accommodate this divine aspect, this supernatural aspect, just by accepting the fact that, uh, say if there is a world above us or like other dimensions why does everyone have to be saying the same thing yeah, it's a lot like, of them yeah well yeah like it could just be the pantheon of ancient greece rather than like uh god the father above us where everyone's uh all on the same page about things right and some of them could be giving malevolent or misguided messages and and now we are really in the weeds because we're speculating about the motives of machine elves but but mm. but yeah i think that's a that's an interesting point um I think the another interesting thing that, that's always stuck with me is that when people, so people take ayahuasca and people take DMT, mm -hmm. same chemical molecule. And I know a lot of people who take ayahuasca that I've spoken to have reported profoundly South American experiences. Mm -hmm. Jaguars, Aztecs, uh, you know, uh, what do you call them? Hieroglyphics, pyramids, you know, that aesthetic. Whereas people who smoke DMT seemed to trend more towards the alien um, and again, I think the interesting question about that is whether it's a question of cultural preconditioning or, I don't know, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, the Aztec spirits inhabiting us through through the ayahuasca. Uh, maybe a little from column A, a little from column B there. <laughs> so like, I'll, I'll um, jump on that and say that it's slightly more complicated than, oh, it's the same drug. Because, yeah, so mm. the main psychoactive component of ayahuasca is DMT. Yeah. Right, but so uh, ayahuasca for listeners who aren't familiar is this. Who aren't cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where have you been the last five years? <laughs> for the Republican listenership out there. <laughs> um, so ayahuasca is this deeply hallucinogenic brew. Like it's, it's not one plant, like it's. It's an MAOI inhibitor. 
one of the ingredients has to be an MAOI inhibitor, yes. Do you want to tell us what that is? Well, I'm excited to tell this bit of the story because I'm sure you've heard this a hundred times because you probably, if you listen to this, you probably listen to podcasts that have already mentioned it. But essentially, the remarkable thing about it is if you eat DMT, my understanding is that your body processes it and nothing happens to it. Yep. Your body naturally produces dimethyltryptamine like it does. In tiny amounts. A tiny, there you go. But I believe it's the chemical that makes you dream. And I believe when you die, you get flooded with it and then you become an angel. Is that? That's, Allegedly. Oh, there yeah. you go. So when you eat DMT, even if you munched a whole bowl full of it, nothing would happen. Your body breaks it down. So there is a, another chemical compound called an MAOI inhibitor. Uh, mono, uh, Monoamine oxidase thank inhibitor. Much. Thank you very good. And uh, what that does is prevents your body from breaking that DMT, meaning that you have the full effect of the drug. Now, the remarkable thing, thing about it and the thing that people get excited about is that to create ayahuasca, you need to mix the two compounds together, perhaps with some more compounds, and cook them for a while. Both compounds occur naturally in plants in the Amazon jungle. The Amazon tribes managed to synthesize them and cook them together. When they were asked by scientists, how did you figure out how to do it? They said, the jungle told us. Yeah. 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 Explain that, science. Yeah, take that, sciences. Um, yeah, but I mean, the, the reason why I'm hammering you on them being different is because I don't know that there's really any shaman who will just take the mimosa the dmt sauce and the ayahuasca and that's it like mm. really there are like at least a dozen other plants that might be T put into this mix. tobacco plays a role in it oh yeah tobacco well, is uh, really seen as a the, yeah master plant master right, teacher right, right, right. but it, so it's typically not the tobacco that you're thinking of mm. if you're just a regular smoker it's nicotiana rustica which is i think either seven or nine times more powerful and more addictive yeah mm. yeah um, and so, so, so part of the reason for these different effects is because it's not just the same drug in different forms and, and different uh, routes of administration. Yeah. There's all sorts of stuff going on right. um, with the other ingredients. So if you ask, um, I mean, at, le at least some of, I've not, I've not polled them all, like at least some of the indigenous cultures about what's the important thing. They'll say that it's the root. They'll say that it's the monoamine oxidase inhibitor. That, it, that root is called ayahuasca. Mm. That's what gets its name. It's not that the DMT is the special stuff. So where does the DMT come from? Because I know that all plants contain trace amounts of DMT, right? So, such trace amounts of DMT. Yeah. Like if you've ever uh, eaten a bit of orange peel accidentally, you've probably had a little bit of DMT. Don't yeah. get over yourself. Okay. You're, you're not a druggie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so, th so there are plants that have um, still very small amounts, but higher amounts. So the mimosa plant... Um, Mim oh, no, I can't remember the Latin. I'm ashamed to my mm. scholarly group. Out. Um, we'll take a quick break. We'll come right back. This will all be edited out. You'll never hear this in your life. Goodbye. Right. I don't feel like there's much discussion about what's potentially problematic about this. I'm, I'm, I'm far from the only one, but I think there's lots of interesting stuff to look at about, well, these changes that happen. The fact that... Uh, I mean, it's a very strange drug that you'll give to your loved one. Like, he goes off one day, has this therapy session, he comes back. He's not addicted to smoking anymore, but he really wants to spend time in nature. And he loves going to art galleries where he never did before. And he's just more, he's open to more, to new experiences. He, he uh, relates to his fellow people, his fellow man differently. Those all seem unobjectionable. And I think a lot of people would think, huh, what's the problem with that? Um, I'm a little more worried about uh, how we get there. So with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, uh, it turns out that 
the magnitude of treatment effect seems to be correlated and a lot of people suspect is causally related to uh, having what's called a mystical experience. Uh, so a mystical experience in this context is uh, the sort of, well, if you are a hard-nosed, um, sceptical, rationalist atheist, you think it's just some strange stuff going on in your brain. Um, but these mystical experiences are characterized by um, this sense of sacredness, of eternity, timelessness, like ineffability, mm. like the fact that you have one of these experiences and human language utterly fails to accurately describe or explain what's going on here, which incidentally seems like something of a challenge for getting informed consent, like in in the standard medical context. Like how the hell are you going to say to someone Oh, you might get nausea. You might get transient anxiety. Side effects may include. Uh, you may have this experience, which the which the tool of language is utterly hopeless uh, to describe. Here, go read this book of mystical poetry, and then you'll have an idea. Mm. I mean that that can be overcome. Yeah, but all of the down, like all of the non-medical downstream consequences of this are super interesting. Like we don't do this in medicine. We don't. We're not in the business of making people experience the sacred in order to get some effects. And I think there's loads, there's loads of interesting stuff to explore here. Um, so, you, so you listen to um, some of the people who've gone through the clinical trials uh, describing their experiences in the context of having a mystical experience when they really came to feel better about their depression. It, like, I think it's very defensible to say, what the hell are we doing? toying with this for in psychiatry like to so uh beautiful phrase by one of these trial participants um uh called it like an ontological insurgency so you can come in wanting to be cured of your tobacco addiction and then you go into it and you feel like you're meeting the face like you're looking upon the face of the divine like all your um conceptions about how reality worked are turned on their head like it really seems that medical psychiatry might be a very limiting model for the, for understanding this right uh so we are one of these trial participants rachel peterson said in the wake of her psilocybin for depression uh treatment it's not so much that my depression got smaller but that the world around that depression got bigger like immensely bigger and it seems sort of petty and impoverished to um, have these experiences sort of on tap, but then focusing in a purely clinical medical framework. Um, so when you're uh, trialing a new drug for the FDA, um, you want to check whether it works or not. So there'll be all sorts of measures, like very quantitative measures about how well are you functioning? What's your mood like? What... what um, how well do you feel like you're relating to other people is impacting on how you go about your day-to-day -day life, like stick a number on it. Um, and a lot of those questions, which are kind of designed for typical talk therapies, typical antidepressant drugs, really don't touch upon all this other strange stuff that's going on, right? Because in the wake of one of these experiences, um, so the senior study guide at uh, Johns Hopkins University that does this, Mary Cosimano, um, mentions that 
when you have one of these experiences, it throws up lots of challenges for understanding what's going on. How do you want to live your life in a way that go past the six-month check-in point after you've had it, that go past the 12-month check-in point? And it seems like uh, we might be missing. Sure, maybe we're getting this great clinical effect, and we are, but it's changing people's perceptions of the world in a way that seems um, not really, perhaps, the proper ground of psychiatry. Mm. I'll, give you, I'll give you another example, say. Um, so one thing that uh, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy seems to be fantastic in is addressing death-related anxiety. So I think death-related anxiety, super interesting condition. Um, because firstly, people are not sure whether we should count this as a medical condition or not, which I think, yeah. it, which I think is, quite, is quite prudent because what you have is uh, coming face-to-face -face with your mortality and just being locked in existential terror because it's all coming to an end for you. And it's not that the party's coming to the end. As uh, Christopher Hitchens says, the party's going up, mm. going to carry on you have to leave. Mm. And I mean, God bless people that work in palliative care, but uh, to look upon people facing these challenges and saying, take two of these every day, that seems kind of hubristic to me. Mm. Like it, it seems like this is something fundamental about the human condition, which makes me think maybe a psychiatric frame isn't exactly what we need here. Well, let, let me put you on the spot then. Are you, are you, in some sense, arguing for a reframing of psychedelic therapy as something more than psychiatric and, trans, and, and verging more on, on, on the spiritual or transcendent? I, I mean, I, I don't have a settled position on this. Luckily, I've got three years to decide what the hell I think about all this. My concern is that um, perhaps there are some elements of this psychedelic movement that have fully latched on to the medical ontology, fully subscribed to the idea that, hey, the only way we're going to get these substances to people and have all of the people close to the levers of power on board is by medicalizing it. Mm. Um, and I, I really see the virtue in that argument. I worry that if we rush ahead um, with this framework whereby the people you can get these psychedelic drugs from is your state-approved psychiatrist. We are necessarily really limiting some incredibly vast experience in a way that isn't necessarily helpful. Um, because there are plenty of people that use these drugs as tools for self-exploration um, that use them in religious circumstances or not, or, or otherwise. And I just feel like it would be a crying shame if, in a sense, for us to legalize psychedelic therapy wouldn't really be changing drug policy at all. Right. Like, I mean, it would still remain highly illegal. Right. I mean, like, well, I, I mean, I suppose, well, I mean, strictly speaking, heroin isn't illegal. Cocaine isn't illegal. Okay, well, let me, let me, let me change this into a question for you to some extent. I mean, for, for most people, it seems like, okay, well, let, let me ask you this. I mean, the, the, the way to take psychedelics is with your friends in nature, uh, not, not in a white room under clinical study with a desired effect. Would you agree with that statement? I, uh, I feel conflicted about it. What I would mm. want to see in the medium to long-term future is an open-ended plurality, mm. like of different ways in which you can legally explore these substances. I think um, 
putting too many constraints on it is problematic. Yeah. Um, and so like one, one concern I have about the speed of the development of psychedelic medicine is that if it, because if it is too successful too quickly, that seems to close the door on any reform of psychedelic drugs. Okay, so at the moment, like drug policy in most countries is f is prohibitionist, is yeah. uh, unenlightened what, what for all sorts of reasons. What acid and psilocybin? Is it class A? At the They're both class, They're both class A. A. Yeah, yeah. Ketamine is a class C. Uh, I believe, and uh, is it B or C? It's, B or it's C. not A, right? Yeah. But but they're the highest, the highest mm. level. Yeah. Right? So intent to deal acid or psychedelic to give to people is a highly prosecuted. Uh, well, I mean, there's, there's no upper limit on um, the punishment for supply of class A drugs. And I believe, I think the Brotherhood of Love and these these organisations that manufacture LSD, which is quite a hard drug to manufacture, have been have felt the full hammer of the law mm. uh, in, in some sense for the attempt to, to organically distribute these mm -hmm. drugs to the population has been strongly discouraged by, by the government. Yeah, probably, I mean, I find, well, the, uh, certainly in the UK, the Misuse of Drugs Act, uh, we won't spend too long on this. I know it's a bit, it's a bit dry. Mm. I mean, of all the problems in it, it's the baffling classification ABC as yeah. if that has any um, bearing at all on the harms of that drug either and, to and the user or the society. Professor David Nutt for, for directly questioning that classification system mm. and being, I guess, uh, lost his job and lost a lot of academic credos for directly saying this is absurd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks, yeah. David. Sorry, yeah. thanks, shout pro thanks Professor Nutt. To the Nutt. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not on first name terms with him. Yeah, I shouldn't yeah. say like that. David yeah, but um, I mean, of course, we, we've got plenty of evidence saying that actually this prohibitionist take doesn't really benefit anyone, which is why increasingly i'm very skeptical about anyone saying oh lsd psilocybin shouldn't be class a like cannabis shouldn't be class b in some sense no they shouldn't be class a or class b if you look at the harms of it mm. but it's not much of a victory to like make it class c if because that's still operating within a completely unhelpful framework so you're calling for the legalization of all drugs uh um hmm you know what yeah I'll oh buy dude I'll fantastic i was I'll bite that Facet bullet. Facetially. No, no, no. Yeah, okay, yeah. I, will, I will bite that bullet and nuance it a lot mm. because I think when most people hear legalize all drugs, they hear the most terrifying um, version of what that legalization means. Right. So legalization means very little in terms of what the situation on the street would be. There's a, so there's a fantastic um, NGO based out of Bristol called Transform, mm. Transform Drug Policy Foundation, I think, uh, who... And yeah, they are for the legalization of all drugs. But the legalization of all drugs doesn't mean you can pop to the corner shop and get heroin, get some meth. No, that's madness. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, in a lot of places in the UK, you can pop to the corner. By codeine over the counter. Yeah. No. No. Sorry. I mean, like you, you can, oh, you see. can, yeah, yeah you sure. can from, uh, sure. from illicit dealership. Yeah. So, what you can do once you legalize a drug is regulate the terms of its sale. Yeah. So things like cannabis, yeah, you could get from like a special cannabis shop. Which we've already seen the practical functioning of that in states like California. Yeah. Uh, that has not been a disaster for society. It's raised enormous amounts of money in tax revenue. Uh, people are not setting fire to their wives. It mm -hmm. seems to have been a fairly successful experiment, at least on that scale. And we have Scandinavian countries who have, I believe... Uh, well, Portugal, I think, is the example people talk about, right? Everyone loves talking about Portugal when it <laughs> yeah. comes to drugs. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, 
what's lost a bit in the discussion of the Portuguese drug policy is that it's not just that they decriminalized it, it's that they invest decriminalized all drug use. Mm. They did do that, yeah. but they invested a huge amount in kind of supporting people with problematic drug use and investing in conceiving of it as a health problem yeah. or something to support people through rather than punish them for. Yeah. Um, what was I going to... I was going to make a pitch for the legalization of all drugs. Please. Um, so, uh, are you familiar with the term the British model? No. Right, so... Prior to the UN drug conventions, we used to prescribe a fair bit of heroin on the NHS. Really? Yeah. And um, for, for what? For what? Uh, for, uh, for, for the condition of uh, heroin dependence, right? So, uh, yeah. uh, you you laugh, but like, <laughs> no, no, it's the perfect solution. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, yeah, 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 it is yeah, right. because uh, I mean, if you're addicted to heroin now, um, pretty rapidly, doesn't matter how wealthy you are, um, you run out of money and you need to turn either to criminal uh, acquisitions to be able to fund your habit or you get your friend hooked so you can sell to them so you can support your habit. Um, Yeah, and so, I mean, so there is, maybe it's an apocryphal story, but I could believe it being true, like New York crime families discussing, do we want to move in to the London market to sell heroin? Mm. And they decided, well, no, they can get it for free um, on prescription, so why would we even try? Mm. And actually, while we were doing that, um, the problematic heroin use was really under control. It's only once we stopped doing that um, that we saw all the problems associated with it. So for most people who, who resist the idea of uh, legalizing drugs, remember that there are all sorts of models of regulation like that. The question of legalizing drugs isn't saying, do you agree with drugs or not? Do you think mm-hmm. drugs are good or bad? The drugs are here. Right. And we've tried getting rid of them yeah. for a significant amount of time, and yeah. we've not got rid of them. Yeah, like, the question is, drugs are here, what do we do about it? Right, like, like prohibition, like a, a, a number of, you know, well, I, I don't know, I guess you could call them asocial behaviours, um, which we've attempted to legislate in the past, and, and, and that's failed. Um, I mean, it, would, you, would you, so I think the other thing about, when you say drug, I mean, it's such, it's such a foolish term in some senses because Absolutely. of course it encapsulates everything from drinking seven pints of beer in Weatherspoons to doing psychedelics once a year with your friends in the forest mm-hmm. to to all kinds of, of different things um you know I think anyone who's maybe been in that world a little bit will see very large differences between groups of drug users and and differences in behavior and outcome of how people use it I think for me one of the enlightening things about that was seeing how Adderall is used and prescribed, uh, especially in America, mm. a drug that is a, a pure amphetamine, uh, a hard drug sold and given and, and prescribed almost without agency to young people and, and, and not quite, I wouldn't say forced upon them, but strongly encouraged to give them. Yeah. And, and I think this, this broaches onto what you're talking about with the, the ethics of, of psychedelic use. You know, at what point does curing someone's lack of focus um, cross into significant personality changes, physical changes, all kinds of side effects? Uh, it seems like a, a very, patri- as you said, paternal thing to do. Mm-hmm. To tell, I, mean, my friend, I think my friend was 12 when they put him on Ritalin. He was a jumpy kid in mm-hmm. school. He didn't like sitting in a room for six hours a day, which yeah. I've taught young boys before a lot of them don't like that so to tell him that he needs meth 
for his or <laughs> you know Ritalin is methylphenidate, but but Adderall is you know dextroamphetamine and yeah. analogous to methamphetamine. Uh, to tell them that they need to dose their kid with meth every day uh, seems remarkable, and I think if you are if if you if you do have a conspiratorial mindset. It, it does seem remarkable that governments are willing to prescribe 12-year-olds amphetamines, mm-hmm. but not willing to let adults take acid. Uh, that does seem like a very bizarre dichotomy. Mm. Very, very bizarre. Um, and I think maybe conspiratorial people would say, well, one of them makes you a productive worker of society. Yeah, here, here, here and, it comes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and one of them makes you, uh, you know, not believe in COVID and uh, all of the other cool stuff that comes with having an open mind. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it, there's uh, a um, colleague of mine, Jules Evans, does a lot of interesting stuff on this concept of conspirituality, um, which is there's a very interesting overlap on, on new age beliefs, which includes like a healthy proportion of the um, psychedelic community, which is a broad church, but mm. there's strong hippie elements. Um, there's lots of overlap between new age thinking and conspiracy. Yeah. Conspiracy thinking. and uh, so a thing about, about psychedelic use, uh, I can see there being um, like a downstream consequence of like magical thinking. Uh, and it's interesting like how magical style thinking interacts with uh, the complicated world that we have now. And so, you know what, as uh, we discussed off air, maybe those conspiracy theories have some merit to them. But uh, I wonder if there is um, some enhancement of pattern seeking, which makes you overinterpret uh, what's going on? I, I, I think, personally speaking, I think you've put put. I think you've hit the nail on the head in that the on a on a standard Big Five model, trait openness is largely and please, I mean, you're the psychiatry uh, uh, PhD, but it is it, it is both an ability and a curse to read patterns into information, which is <laughs> one of the great gifts that humans have, I'd say. I would yeah. call us information foragers. I would say it's our major strength as a species. Mm-hmm. It's why people are addicted to the internet. It's why you're probably listening to this podcast is because you're basically foraging for interesting information in between you know, all of our nonsense. And that the, what psychedelics and highly open people and also borderline schizophrenia do is, is in a way is open the floodgates to correlative interpretations of reality. And that can be an incredibly enhancing thing. It can also be a very toxic thing yeah. if, if, not, if not considered and not controlled. And, and if you meet someone who has high trait openness, high trait, you know, you know has, a, has a fairly high IQ, you know, you can see someone who has been has a re, reads the world in a very you know open way and sees patterns and correlations and connections where maybe there aren't some is the, i mean i i didn't know that that was correlated to openness very plausibly but, i mean uh, I, I again i i mean to to, to me trait trait openness is is highly correlated with creativity sure uh, oh okay no yeah. i see the connection yeah. now i can see yeah that seems to make sense it, it is it is a I'll, it's I'll a way of viewing the world right so my understanding is that you know there are people who put things in boxes, mm-hmm. and there are people who don't believe that those boxes exist. Interesting. And both, both of them are pathological in their extremes, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this is interesting. Like, the, I think this um, there's some conceptual overlap with what I was talking about, mm. like the loosening of priors. Yeah. Like, 
uh, the loosening of priors during an LSD experience, which is, I guess, if you are interacting with the world with a very strong set of priors about what you're going to expect in the world, yeah. that's exactly what you're going to see. Um, but then it, like, if you're loosening what your expectations are, like you can draw connections that a more tightly focused person might not draw. And, and I think this is why, and I think we should say this, if you're prone to schizophrenia, if you have that tendency in you, I mean, the use of any drug, including psychedelic drugs, I would say, I, would say I, I, I have known and seen people, smart people, with high trait openness who have got into smoking weed at a young age, and I've seen them have uh, difficult issues with paranoia, with, um, with, with schizophrenia, and with, with mental health issues, because drugs can induce a loosening of category boundaries that may not be a good thing for everyone. And, and this is not you talking, this is me talking, I want to make that clear. But I, I, in a way, I almost see strong benefits in the use of these drugs for people who are too tightly bound up in category, and for people who already have a predisposition to being a-categorical or highly open, these drugs can induce states, I think, I, uh, states of mania uh, that, that I are can, not healthy. I can endorse all of that. Yeah. So um, in, this, uh, in the first run of psychedelic research in the 50s and 60s, it did seem to be a finding uh, that would exacerbate psychotic-like conditions. And in this psychedelic renaissance of the last 15 years or so, um, quite standardly, uh, they haven't accepted anyone with a history of um, schizophrenia or a psychotic mm. disorder or indeed a uh, family history mm. of one of these conditions. Mm. And there's good reasons for doing this, like neurologically plausible um, accounts of what's going on. So when, um, when Albert Hoffman at Sandoz first synthesized LSD, when he fir- once he'd had his first shout few out, trips... Shout out to Hoffman. Yeah. Love you, big man. Yeah. Um, I mean, Sandos, obviously, we're really interested by it, but they're like, fuck, how are we going to make money on this? And so they, like, they, they rooted around for what this was, because like, it's not much like anything else at all. But one of the initial descriptors of LSD was as a psychotomimetic, something that in, a sh- in the short term wow. mimicked a psychosis. Controlled-induced psychosis. Yeah, so, wow. so um, one thing they suggested was... Um, uh, let's give this to psychiatrists so they have some first-person experience wow. of what their patients are <laughs> so going through. So you go through. to psychiatry school, you induce schizophrenia, you can induce narcissism, they give you a different pill for each class so you can experience <laughs> each psychological disorder. Uh, That's remarkable. Yeah, yeah so yeah. If, I, like, if I recall correctly, there was one um, mental health institution in Canada, maybe it was even in the UK, which uh, the architect for it largely did some of the work on LSD, or rather like the conceptual... The conceptualization of it was having been informed by what this condition was like and like what would be the most con- distri- least distressing conditions, mm. uh, physical conditions to be around in that. <laughs> well, again, it's funny because, of course, putting someone in a white room and having a scientist ask them questions every four minutes would seem to me to be one of the worst archetypes for... I mean, well... I guess it's a controlled environment. I, yes. I guess you can say that because I've certainly seen people who have gone to a house party and taken acid for the first time at 1am and had uh, it seems to me that the worst way to take the psychedelic drugs is in a uh, not having done them before in a party chaotic environment and without respect for their abilities yeah you, know, abso- abso- you can take a lot of cocaine and you're probably just gonna like open a business and 
buy a lot of stuff on Amazon and fall asleep. Taking high doses of psychedelic drugs at 2 a.m., we don't recommend it, folks. No, uh, I should also make clear I'm not a clinical doctor either. Uh, okay. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Good no. Know. Like. Yeah. This is not medical advice. Yeah. Um. Ah, uh, lots of interesting threads to jump on there. I don't know where to go with it. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, yeah. Uh. Yeah. So, all right. So maybe these like new wave uh, psychedelic experimental trials. You're right. Maybe they're not the best way to do it. But you know what? They're a fuck ton better than they were back in the fifties and sixties. Mm. Like some of the reading through some of that research is horrible for a number of reasons. Like. Firstly, I don't think they cared a lot about writing up science then. Some of, the, some of that is bad writing. But more importantly, some of the conditions that they put patients in yeah. with these LSD trials, horrific. Like there's uh, one study that uh, gave, I think it's 800 micrograms of LSD, which is about eight times a reasonable recreational dose. And they strapped them to a gurney in a room by themselves and let them get on with it. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. Uh and I think it's really important to clarify that like Terence McKenna's, you know, heroic dose where he advocates taking what's the what's the suicide? Oh, I don't know, ten, yeah, grams ten, ten grams of mushrooms and turning all the lights off and meditating. I mean, that's one thing because it's self induced, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that anyone who's a human being, which if you're listening to this, statistically you probably are, <laughs> um, will know that there's a huge difference in experience between something that's self-induced and externally induced. Yeah. You know, you could probably take that amount of drugs and meditate in a dark room and get through it. Being, as you say, strapped to a gurney and administered that is, I mean, it's actually probably even beyond physical torture in some ways. I mean, yeah. it's, it's well. I mean, I, I can't yeah. imagine anyone listening is contemplating uh, strapping themselves to a gurney. Uh, we have a lot of listeners in Germany who uh, are into this kind well, of stuff. Really, yeah, you've got yeah. a lot of listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have a huge. <laughs> I love you, mum. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, so I guess, I guess you know, taking this towards towards an endpoint, um, and you know, I don't, I don't want to push this too much into a box or or something simple. Um, I mean, what, what, again, like, what, what do you think is the right path for, I guess, for people and government and state to take? What, what we have this drug. These drugs exist: mm-hmm. psilocybin and also LSD. What, in your opinion? I mean, how should we be handling this in the next in the next few years? Really, really good question. Yeah. Let me tell you what I'm worried about that seems like it might happen, uh, which I think we started on the track of. Um, so if all the clinical trials go ahead really quickly and say in five, six years, they become hugely accepted as a part of mental health treatment. If that's to be the case it becomes astonishingly difficult for any other drug reform to happen related to them. So, like, consider that you're a politician, open-minded, evidence-responsive, but still ultimately at the behest of, uh, like, a broad range of constituents, of a broad, well, unfortunately not a very broad range of press outlets, right? And you've got people coming to you saying, you know what, actually, for all sorts of reasons, we should decriminalize these drugs. Mm. What? We should decriminalize these drugs, which are so powerful and dangerous that they may only be administered in controlled clinical conditions under the supervision of two medics. Like, think about the optics of that. Who, who's going to be the but, politician but, but, that does but that? But to push back at the moment, these drugs are not allowed to be administered by anyone ever. At the moment, these so drugs are that, allowed to be administered in those controlled clinical conditions. Right. But think about, all right, think about, think about worldwide. Yeah. Uh, 
the the West is kind of late to the party in dealing with psychedelic drugs. There are huge numbers of uh, cultures that use psychedelics. Can you other than so, us. I mean, I know South America. Are there some others around the mm -hmm. world that, that that use these? Uh, yeah. So uh, in East Gabon, there's the Bwiti people use iboga for spiritual mm. purposes. That's a big one for quitting uh, nicotine addiction and stuff like that, right? It's, Heroin addiction. Uh, so iboga is a is or ib Ibogaine. I, ibogaine is ibogaine is, right? ibogaine is the chemical constituent, whereas uh -huh. iboga is the root that it comes from. Okay. So that seems to be, uh, yeah, really powerful uh, addiction interrupter, um, but used um, traditionally for spiritual purposes, mm. not just South America, but uh, Mexico okay. uh, as well, like have a strong mushroom tradition. Yeah. So in fact, the only reason... Um, uh, we're using psilocybin now in the West is because of um, forays into Mexico by curious Americans. Mm. Um, so, so my concern is that uh, despite all of the disanalogies culturally, these are cultures that have hundreds, if not thousands, of years of understanding what the effects of these compounds are on the human psyche. And... I mean, they don't. Maybe they don't have traditionally the scientific method as we know it. Maybe there's lots of stuff we can access that they can't about it. But it seems like pure folly to just try to um, straightforwardly translate. Oh, there's this stuff that they use, but in the West we use doctors, and that's fine. Like I, th yeah, I'm I'm skeptical about y yielding the entirety of the space to the medical establishment, and I'll tell you another reason why. Uh, so certainly in the last 12 months and especially certainly in the last 24 months, especially in the last 12 months, there's been a lot of investment in this because capital has sniffed around and realized there is some money to be made here. Now, can I interject quickly? Because it's always seemed to me obvious that the problem with psychedelic drugs from a capital point of view is that they are a one shot missile. And oh, the effect are is they? Well, well, <laughs> well. I mean, you tell me, but you know what right. I mean? Compared to SSRIs, where mm -hmm. you can be banking money from people for the rest of their life, it's yep. always seemed to me that it, one of the impediments for these drugs legislation has been that you give people psilocybin once and then they come back nine months later. You know, where's the money in that? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, so where the money is on, in that really depends on what your payment structure model is. And so, of course, thinking, say, in a US context, one of the challenges is that, hey, maybe we'll legalize these drugs and only the wealthiest are able to access them. Hmm. Okay. Uh, is uh, psilocybin just a one-shot model, like one-shot treatment? I don't know, because actually a good chunk of the psychological benefit, the subjective clinical benefit that comes from this treatment is, and actually I, I uh, regret not making this clearer earlier on, the treatment isn't psilocybin. The treatment is psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. Right. Right. So right. You, you'll have one, maybe two drug sessions where you uh, slip on some eye shades, you have a carefully curated list of music on, and you're given the drug and you do your journey. Oh, well, but that's really, not it. This is really key stuff. I this wish is we really got key this, stuff. I wish we got to this before. That's, that's really interesting. Okay. Let me, tell, let me tell you a bit more about it. Yeah. It's not just like you, you come in, uh, check your coat at the door, sit down, do this drug. No, 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 no. Okay. no. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. So you have before that, uh, certainly in these early, and they are still early clinical trials, you'll have 
two meetings with the two therapists who are going to be there. So you establish rapport. You get to know and trust these people, right? Um, well, let, let's talk a little bit about what goes on in that drug session, right? And so really, most people's understanding of what goes on um, with psychedelics, the thing that sticks out in their mind is bad trips. Like maybe you take psychedelics and you're, you lose control of yeah. your mind and you have a real big yeah. freak out. Yeah. Like why that happens, I think, in a lot of recreational contexts, not all, but a lot of them, is because ultimately, why do people take drugs? People take drugs because they want to feel good or because they want to feel bad. It's also That's, extremely cool to take drugs. And of course, it is extremely cool. Uh, so, I mean, that's the same alcohol, cocaine, cannabis, heroin. Like, if you feel bad, you know what? If your life sucks, mm. it won't solve your problem, but it'll make the pain mm. a bit easier to bear with for that evening. And, I mean, that's, I think, needlessly problematized and stigmatized in ways that aren't helpful. Yeah. But you do, that, you do that with a psychedelic. Mm. You've got shit going on in your life, yeah. in your past, yeah. that you don't want to deal with. You just want to numb the pain. Like, you take two tabs of acid and do that, and it's a fucking freight train <laughs> crushing you. Right, right. Right? Which is the opposite of the opiate crisis, in a way. We have, we, it's diametrically opposed. And this is, to go back to my point earlier, talking about drugs, mm -hmm. you know, to, 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 to class Oxycontin acid in the same category is hilarious. If you, if you want to numb reasons, your yeah. pain, take an Oxycontin. Yeah. You won't be in pain anymore. Mm. You, have, you might feel a little bit dope sick, but you, you, you won't be in pain anymore. You'll yeah. be on a cloud nine. Take, yeah. As you say, to take, yeah, you, you takes the sharp yeah. edges off the world. A, a, absolutely, compared yeah. to acid, which you know sharpens the edges with a with a you know with a knife. And uh, well, yeah. welcome to reality. Yeah. Know. So, so like the word psychedelic from the Greek, it means mind revealing, and so that's uh, what that's a good part of like what's going on with bad trips yeah. is that it is revealing yeah. to you these painful aspects yeah. of the mind. Yeah. When you are uh, once you've had your two meetings with your therapist and you're into your drug session and you take this drug. It's still a psychedelic. It's still mind revealing. Like there's still this uh, surprising ease of access of this deep subconscious material and previous trauma and pain, mm. just as when you have a bad trip. The issue, the thing is, though, you've got two trained professionals who you've come to know and trust who tell you, I know this seems scary as hell. You're going to be okay. This stuff that's coming up, why don't you turn towards it? Why don't you look at what's going on there? Okay, and so and so that's what a lot of productive stuff happens in that session, isn't because you're made to feel good. Mm. It's the sometimes that you're made to really feel bad, yeah. like to really like tear at your hair and beat your breast and like scream and really connect with those feelings. Mm. And also, like in the case of past trauma, look on things like a new way, mm. like get a, get a new perspective on, on this pain. Okay, so then you have that drug session. But really, what's interesting after that is this period of integration, which is you'll have two, three, maybe more sessions with those therapists where you get a chance to explore and talk about what you experienced to come to make some further sense of it. And importantly, <coughs> and importantly to understand how to port these insights into your day-to-day -day life. Right, because I mean, neurologically, um, well, we have like there is after a psychedelic experience what's called this afterglow period, this period of higher plasticity, mm. uh, where you're going to be more receptive to changes, positive or negative changes in your life, and and that's on an actual neural level. Yes. Wow. Oh, yes. Wow, Absolutely. Wow, wow. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, I think we got onto this because I was wanted to share my worries about 
the purely medical model yeah. or like the the uh, profit seeking model in yeah. this which is i mean those integration sessions if i'm seeking to maximize profit that kind of looks like fat to be cut right so to bring a new treatment to market you don't need to make it as effective as possible you need to make it more effective than whatever else is going on while still being profitable right so the issue like the issue um i have with just the medical model there's a place for it sure but think what one thing we need to bear in mind is that there's a perverse incentive at play once you are mo- once you are monetizing this therapy right. right i mean i mentioned before the sorts of challenges that come up that that tumble out of this therapy go on 6 months 12 months longer if what the treatment package that you're being sold is is a perfunctory hello uh, through your therapists then a week later um you get the drug session then you have two hour long conversations on the phone a little while later mm. maybe even with someone else mm. then you're actually left without support mm. in this long period where you're highly malleable to stuff you know what if i want to make money out of this it's not an issue mm. if uh if I cut the fat at the end because and they struggle a bit more, they'll come back. Come back. Well, this, I mean, in, in some sense, and I think we will start wrapping up. I mean, you're, you're getting almost in a way to uh, a problem that I think transcends psychedelic therapy and maybe yeah. cuts yeah. part of, 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 <laughs> of yeah. psychiatry in general, mate. I mean, not to, to challenge your specialization, mm. but any, any, any model where... And in a capitalist system where repeat business is is the key, uh, a panacea is in some ways the last thing that you want. And mm-hmm. I don't think you're saying that psychedelic drugs are a panacea. I God think, no. I, no, absolutely not. Um, but what you're, I think maybe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is saying is that human life and mental illness is a really complicated, difficult, ongoing problem. And what we have here is a, a screwdriver that can fix some of the some of the smaller issues within that and that any attempt to to either label this as a panacea or to corporatize it as a solution is going to be is it's going to be bad essentially this is this is and i think and and uh, you know one of the to, you, i want to talk about this before we finish yeah. okay and i want to put this to you as a question um human society for most of human society has had rites of passage yeah and 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 oh, what are you? yeah sorry yeah. i don't want to anticipate where you're going <laughs> that with this a, that was a great it. noise that's the kind of noise i want to hear and and sacred ceremonies mm. and when you became a man or you became a woman whatever you consider those terms to mean there was a a ceremony uh which, which I think, I think trauma, a lot of the times has been a key part of that ceremony because yeah. I, I think adulthood is traumatic. Mm. I think I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't know what it's like, but I, I assume getting a getting a period is traumatic. I assume that's what pu- I hear. Yeah, <laughs> I assume puberty. I mean, puberty was traumatic for me. And mm. um, I think that human ev- growth is is traumatic. Going getting older is traumatic, you know. So society's ability to turn that trauma into ceremony has yeah. been a key part of our evolution as a species. And it seems to me that part of what you're saying is that an attempt to, to turn that difficult, complicated, long-term experience into a single dose of magical medicine is, is not 
is not what we want. And please speak on that. Wow, uh, I feel like you're you're very much overinterpreting the things that I've said. Like, what what are you what are you in what are you suggesting? You, well, okay, that so no, that? no, that, that's a very reasonable response. But you you said that you were worried about the the co-option of the use of these drugs by by medical facilities right. and by the medical community and the psychiatric community because because okay since since the enlightenment as a society we have lost our faith in in higher powers and spirituality and the last podcast we did was with Joel who is is trained to be a priest and we got into theology and uh -huh. faith a lot so it's on my mind a little bit and it, and it it seems to me and I definitely don't want to put words in your mouth but part of what you're saying is that it, the, sci the scientific framework is an insufficient framework for fully understanding the, the use of psychedelic drugs. I, yeah, I can definitely buy into that. And I think I can comfortably buy into that without claiming there's magic at work. Like there are, I, don't, I can believe that the psychedelic framework is insufficient to capture the meaning of the psychedelic experience yeah. without making any claims about the supernatural um, well, or otherwise. Like yeah. you, all, you, all, you need, all you really need is the understanding that we are a-rational, like we are non-rational creatures but, but, and we are creatures driven by symbol and that fundamentally there are aspects of the human condition which you cannot describe yes. in those scientific terms. Yeah. yeah. That, that to me, that really resonates with me and, and, you know, that is maybe what I wanted to push you on, which is that it, in, in the absence of, of meta-narratives and in the absence of faith and in the absence of an agreed-upon cultural higher good, which we don't have anymore because mm -hmm. we killed God and we sort of gave up on all that stuff. We thought it was, like, you know, outdated. It, it, it does seem to me that there's, there's, there's a part of me that wishes that we could reincorporate the use of, of stuff like psychedelic drugs mm -hmm. as part of a progressive ritual as a human being. And I'm not... I'm not talking about your specialty anymore. I'm not just sure. talking about psychiatric medicine. This is, this is maybe me coming through more. Yeah, yeah. I, I can try and imagine a world where, you know, at the age of 18 or whatever, you, you have, you know, it, it, you know, is an experience that verges, is, verges on the sacred and verges on the transcendent that is a part of your adulthood yeah. and, and, and that can be a constructive part of the human experience. And you don't have to go back to it. You don't have to do it every fucking year. But is there not a place in our society for reminding people of a, a sense of scale, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, you've got my vote uh, <laughs> on that. But, but okay, so like ignoring the huge kind of political, social, cultural implementation Give challenge the team, on that. just acid you know well no okay so uh the uh author prolific podcaster sam harris wrote a very compelling piece kind of in the, in favor of psychedelics he, he described he described um his relationship with his uh young daughters and said if i uh were to know that they were fucking around with crack or heroin or something mm. i would have sleepless nights mm. but if i were to understand that my children would go through their life without having one psychedelic experience. It would hurt me to to think that uh, they don't get to have um, this sort of challenge, like this sort of thing to go through. In the same way that, uh, like, uh, you can be really happy if your son decides to become a monk or a priest really early, but there's some sense in which if they like actively tapped out and chose not to have a sexual relationship, 
there seems to be something mm. really important there about what it is to be human and uh, that they're just opting out of. And it's not like it's, it, the 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 seeking of psychedelic states seems to me to be an anthropological hallmark of human societies, right? Whether that's through the use of psychedelic drugs, mm. whether that's through monasticism and meditation, whether mm. that's through fasting, whether it's through dancing and poetic rituals, you know, it it doesn't. It's not an aberration. Yeah, it's not an exception. It's it's a hallmark, like sure. like gossip and dancing and wearing clothes. Yeah, it just seems like humans seek altered states of consciousness, and the fact that as a society we seem to have access to what seems to be one of the most like munificent and beneficial types of psychedelic safely dosed safely measured in safe you know safe environments and to reject that seems seems bizarre yeah no yeah i agree with you there and i think you can build a reasonably plausible case about using a psychedelic as a coming of age tool mm. so um when i when i get pressed on this issue about what psychedelics are good for uh yeah it's very easy to talk about the clinical benefits of these things but i mean historically i mean like even within the west the vast preponderance of users of psychedelics are recreational users yeah. or users outside of the medical context although people make people make all sorts of claims about what it's good for oh it helps you recognize your oneness or like it helps you like open your eyes Really, what I, what I feel I'm on the safest ground saying is the benefit of psychedelics from the conversations I've had with people is that um, psychedelics uh, help you realize that the way you are accustomed to seeing the world is just a way of seeing the world. It is not the world. Like Other worldviews are available and that your, your experience of the world isn't just how the world is. It is an interaction of what's out there and all the stuff you're carrying with you and bringing into your interactions. I think that is a fantastic note to end the show on. Um, this has been great. Hasn't Eddie, it? Yeah, I think so, Eddie. Let's so do this again. He will be back, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, you've done no a worries. fantastic job. Uh, you're a smart man. Let's uh, uh, crack open another red stripe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's get on it. Thank you very All much. All other beers are available. All other so beers I don't know what you are with yeah, the yeah, yeah. We'll, licensing. We'll see how it goes. Uh, guys, thank you so much. We'll see you again next week for more amazing guests on The Heretic Show. Much love. Goodbye. Goodbye.